Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome everyone to episode 33 of Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the dollar strength against other foreign currencies. How has some travel plans coming up here soon, and uh, he's going to discuss how he's hedging his uh, his currency bets here. The Fed met this week, uh, and they said that their intention is to hike more, but not yet. Um, so we thought we would unpack some of their language. Uh, something that's in, been in the news last week, just for a quick headline, and then not the government shutdown. Government's supposed to shut down next Friday. Uh, we thought we'd unpack that a little bit because it's not in the news right now. And finally, we will roundtable the UAW strike um, updates on their negotiations and where we what we think is going to happen there. We actually even dove into Ford and Stellantis and GM stock, um, and uh, we had some interesting interesting things to talk about there. Today is September twenty second. It is nine forty four in the morning. It's Friday. It's a beautiful day today, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Hao Dang. Hao, thanks for joining the pod today. Hey, Chris. All right, so let's start with dollar strength. The U.S. dollar is enjoying its longest winning streak in nearly nine years. Hal, let's talk about this for a minute. Can we break down what does it mean when the dollar is strong against foreign currencies or weak against foreign currencies or strengthening or weakening? Can we can we break that down for our listeners? Yeah, yeah. We, I, I think we talked about strong dollar, weak dollar, and the term strong versus weak is pretty much a misnomer. It's just it's just describing the direction of the U.S. dollar relative to another currency, right? So a strong dollar has benefits for spenders in, who earn in U.S. dollars, right? So if I'm spending and I'm buying something from Japan or China or Europe, that's going to be relatively cheaper if the dollar is strong against those currencies. But okay. think of it of a, of a, from a point of view of a U.S. company, though. What if I'm selling something in Japan Europe or China, my well, Tesla is a good example, right? Hmm. My prices most likely have to come down, or I'm going to price myself out of the market. Tesla has had to reduce their, you know, the the cost of their cars, the Model Three and the Model Y in China, what several times this year alone, just to keep their their volume up. So that that's a not a benefit to the U.S. dollar strengthening for a company. So if the dollar were to weaken, uh, Tesla's overseas would suddenly be cheaper to buy, relatively speaking, for foreign consumers, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge benefit for, huge, huge benefit for uh, uh, businesses for a weak dollar. So what I'm trying to establish is there's no good or bad with strong or weak other than depending on what side you're on, right? So an example that that I'd share is when the dollar is stronger against foreign currencies, your money goes further when you travel abroad. So yeah. we've been saying for a while now, it's a great time to go to Europe, great <laughs> time to go to Canada. 
uh, our dollars are buying more of euros or Canadian dollars, for example, than they did uh, even just a year ago. Um, and so that means that the, the relative prices when you get to that country are less because you can buy more of their currency. Exactly. But again, tourism is only one small piece of it, right? Totally. So, yeah, totally. Um, I know I'm addressing that because we have quite a bit of chatter last year where the dollar was going to not be the world's currency anymore. Mm -hmm. And people were, you know, uh, trying to bury the dollar and say it was weak because we borrowed too much. We raised rates too high. Um, one, those those headlines or those people don't know what they're talking about because we're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars of money moving mm. and uh, with higher interest rates. And we're the country that's risen rates the fastest and the highest, mm. right? And you look at Japan where they've actually kept their rates at negative. Mm -hmm. And that means if I'm a saver, who doesn't matter what what country I live in, I'm probably going to save my my savings in U.S. dollars because it's paying about 5%. Japan's mm. paying a negative 0.1%. <laughs> so my, my dollar is getting a lot more demand as a U.S. citizen versus the Japanese yen at this very moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is this this quote here that you have in the doc in the doc. It actually says that the U.S. dollar rally was fueled by concerns that the dollar might be losing its status as the world <laughs> reserve currency. Do you think that yeah. that is an inaccurate statement? Like, what's fueling this? If 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 not, and by the way, that statement doesn't actually make sense to me that the dollar would become stronger against foreign currencies if if it loses its status. But but regardless of that, is that do you think that statement is inaccurate and if you do, what do you think is causing the strengthening of the dollar here in the recent time? Yeah, yeah, it might be overly simplistic because it's hard to explain currency movements, as I described, because um, stability of the government, the growing economy or shrinking economy will have impacts on dollar demand or currency demand, depending on the mm. country. Mm. Um, for, for it to strengthen simply because the headline says, uh, the the dollar was losing its status as the world's currency makes no sense. Mm -hmm. I know at a time when um, last year, what, what Russia, China, and Saudi Arabia tried to combine the forces and reestablish a new world currency. Mm -hmm. One, as a world investor, what do you think about the stability of Russia? What do you think about the stability of China? Right, and and in a pool of a cesspool, really of countries that are the poster child of instability, Saudi Arabia of the three seems to be the most stable and they have a lot of warts too. So hmm. that, that the fact that the dollar strengthened on that news doesn't really make sense to me, hmm. but I think it's the, the, the dollar strengthening simply because our interest rates are higher than everyone else right now. And therefore people are buying our bonds. Yeah, buying our bonds because they're getting a higher rate of return. Yeah, higher uh, yield. Do we have the highest interest rates in the world right now? I've, relatively speaking. So they're, well, Relative, they're... probably Venezuela is higher, right? Because <laughs> yeah, they're yeah, you know, exactly. maybe 50% or something, 20%. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah I could eat you an um, Argentinian bond for like 50% yield. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, it's all, so that, that a lot, stability has a lot to do with it. And economic growth has a lot to do with it. 
but interest rates have a lot to do with with it as well. So to to attribute it to a headline doesn't really make sense. But and, didn't didn't the the U.S. debt just get downgraded by the major rating agencies? For sure. And what was cited there was instability of governments and inability yeah. to make decisions. So yeah. how, when that happened, how did how did that play a role in dollar strength or weakening? Or when that happened, did that change this trajectory at all? Yeah, uh, it did and didn't. I think it kind of shifted everything up and down because the U.S. is honestly isn't the only country with debt problems, right? And if, if, if the U.S. is having debt problems, it's going to have um, a ripple effect to other countries, right? Mm. Canada, Mexico specifically. So if you're downgrading U.S. debt, you're implying that anyone that does open and free trade with the U.S. is probably going to have to downgrade as well because they're so reliant on, you know, the, this this ecosystem that we've built, you know, particularly through NAFTA, through trade agreements with Europe, things like that. Interesting. Yeah. So you're having you have a trip coming up here. You're going to Japan. And, in April, yes. And I think that's going to be awesome. I'm excited to hear about it and then maybe follow you there. That'd be cool. <laughs> yeah. um, but so you you just told me as we were prepping for the show here that you're buying Japanese yen right now. Could yeah. you just unpack for our listeners why are you doing that now in advance of April and how are you doing it and. Um, yeah, I'd just love for you to kind of expand on on what you're doing. Yeah, with, taking with the, the dollar strength in action, right? So whether Japan or if we're going to Europe, it would probably be the same effect right now where the euro is trading nearly one-to-one to, one to the dollar. Typically, it's about 140 to one. Yeah. Where y- you would need what uh, a dollar would buy one divided by 140. So a dollar would buy a lot less euros than, than it does today. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with Japan. Right now, uh, Japan is uh, trading in the yen, and it trades uh, one forty something yen to one dollar. <clears throat> Looks like one forty eight. So call yeah. it one fifty. Yeah, and previously uh, you you'd get a lot less yen for each dollar because one the the Japanese currency, believe it or not, over the last thirty years has been persistently strong, and that's because they have had a lack of inflation. Right, so they actually had deflation. People are moving their, have been moving their money there for stability, right? For hmm. a lot of different reasons, even though their interest rates have been relatively low to negative, and it's negative at this point. So, traveling, what we've been doing is uh, going through an app called Wise, which hmm. they allow you to to convert really to any currency. But obviously, the the currencies we're we're talking about are. U.S. dollar and yen, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not going till April, but the yen hasn't been this low in the last ten months. So the the app allows you to buy with U.S. dollars Japanese yen and park it there until hmm. you're ready for your trip. And they send you a little card that you can go to a ATM in Japan, pull out yen, huh. or use it as a debit debit card. Really, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and it, it's kind of a way to hedge. Do they take a spread on it then? So, like, if I see the current rate is one to one forty eight point two six, do they do the conversion at one forty five or one forty or something, or how, how do they make money? 
Yeah, that's why I use them because if you go to an airport, the spreads are about eight percent. It's killer. Yeah, no yeah. fee. Yeah, right. No, no <laughs> fee. Yeah, but they're they're taking out of your exchange rate. Yeah. So yeah, no no exchange rate spread, other than um, a transaction fee, and we pay about half a percent. Okay. Per transaction. So half percent on total money moved in. Total money moved. Yes. And, and but the exchange rate is the market rate. Correct. Hmm. Correct. So the trips in April, and that's what seven months away. We're we're buying and treating it like a savings account for the trip, because if the dollar weakens against the yen, your purchasing power goes down. If you had no yen, right? Because a lot right. of travelers do, um, and it makes a lot of sense. A lot of travelers do buy their foreign currency as soon as they land. Mm-hmm. But that, for me, we booked the trip, and now it's like seven months of currency movement and we don't want to be have want to have negative exposure to that so that's why we're slowly adding to our save trip savings via japanese yen does it pay you anything for holding the the yen there like do you get an interest rate on it no no but okay. the, the exchange rate does move which is interest rate sensitive so in a sure. way there is some kind of compensation for that but yeah you're right so if you think about it in the flip side is instead of buying yen for April, we could just put that in a high yield savings account, earn 5% up until that trip point. Theoretically speaking, those two should balance out. They should. But again, currency is messy. It's unpredictable, right? And that's, that's, really what the interest rate impact is, right? If I can earn 5% in U.S. dollars, why not keep it in U.S. dollars until we're ready for the trip? And that way, when we're ready to exchange, it would essentially be equal to what I'm doing now. WISE is pretty cool. I hadn't heard of them. Yeah. Um, According to WISE, it says, with WISE Travel Money Card, you can get up to 87% better exchange rate and lower fees than your bank. Hmm. I'll have to look into this. This is cool. Yeah, we used it for Mexico, but... um, what Mexico does is actually pretty smart. Is not very smart for for tourists. They a lot of the uh, tourist cities peg their prices to U.S. dollar. Right. So so the U.S. peso mix changes. All they're doing is adjusting their price. Mm-hmm. So they're just raising the prices that the the peso weakens. Yeah, you don't get uh you certainly get US prices when you go to very touristy areas in Mexico. You know, you're paying 16 bucks for tacos, right? But then if you can get into the <laughs> the, the the away from the touristy areas then then you're you're getting the true you know, kind of the benefits yeah, the of moving yeah. exactly traveling into a, a lower cost part of the world. Um okay, this is interesting. I just want to give a a, a five, kind of a 5-year rough history for our listeners of $1 to Japanese yen, so the conversion rate. So if I go back five years, so this is like end of 2018, right? So call it September of 2018. Uh, one US dollar would buy you 114 Japanese yen. Uh, that trended downward all the way until really the end of 2020. So December, call it December, January 2020. Uh, it was just a hair above 100. So one US dollar bought you 100 yeah. Japanese yen. Today, that's 150. So it's gone up 50% uh, after declining, you know, 15% um, since 2021. So all of 2022, it went up uh, about 15%, so 1 to 115. And then it just spiked like crazy 
all the way to 147 in October. Do you know what happened between February of 2022 and October of 2022? It, it went from 115 to 150. Yeah, what a couple of things diverging there where our interest rates are going up pretty, you know, 50 basis, uh, sorry, a uh, half yeah. a percent at a time, right? Big jumps. Um, at the, the other side of the pond where Japan is, their interest rates have, um, they have curve control policies versus uh, our Federal Reserve raises the overnight rate. They They actively buy and sell at different parts of their curve. So they've been actually keeping theirs low hmm. because uh, due to population concerns, right? They have an aging population, no immigration. So their mm -hmm. population has been steadily shrinking for the last however many decades. So they have zero growth, therefore zero inflation. Mm. And that's a problem is they've tried to spur spending for the last few years and they did that by lowering savings rates to negative. So if you have money in the bank in Japan, you're actually losing quite you're a losing bit of money. money. Right, 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 but right. it's keeping up with inflation, right? In their case, deflation. Mm -hmm. So uh, the the Japanese Bank of Japan, which we do keep an eye on, they they do have market moving interest rate policies. But yeah, what they've done recently was send their rates negative while we were raising rates and that's different countries caused have different problems yeah their currency to weaken against ours or our currency to strengthen against theirs Correct. which is what this spike happened over exactly eight months so all the money went to us because we were paying what at the time three and a half four percent that's better than negative whatever they were paying Okay, so then it kind of went crashing down from October of 2022 to about January of 2023. So call it two or so months. Yep. All the way back down to 130, and now it's back up close to 150 again. What what happened there when it crashed and then it recovered? Yeah, we had the. It's really the U.S. movements. We headed into the year thinking that rate hikes were done, inflation's dead, right? And then all of a mm. sudden, what yesterday or Wednesday? We had another Fed announcement saying we're going to pause the September hikes, but we're putting back on the table another hike this year. But earlier uh, during the dates you mentioned was the market was implying that the, the the hikes were pretty much done for the year, or we had two more hikes left in the year and then we were done. Right? I, I can't remember what our forecast yeah. was. Yeah. But we were pretty much at the end of the road, so that that's what really shifted uh, back strength towards the Japanese yen or really to other foreign currencies because the market was pricing ahead that the Fed was done. Interesting. Got it. Okay. Well, so for everybody uh, <clears throat> listening, we'll timestamp this. How started buying Japanese yen in August. Let's call <laughs> it about 145. Was this is my 529 story. Yeah. Yep. This is your 529 story. We're living it live on the air. <laughs> <laughs> and let's see where it's at next year in April when you're going. And let's see if let's see if you made money on this. Yeah, or in our case, just not actively lose money. But totally, again, totally. yeah, you could do this in a different way. Just park your money in U.S. dollars, high yield savings account, and then go travel. It might be a lot less headache because you would be earning whatever percentage you're earning here. I guess you're you're you know let's say that the high yield savings account is paying you five percent. Well, if the currency moves more than five percent. Yeah, in you know against you, uh, yeah. then you you would have done better actually buying that currency. So it's an interesting hedge. 
I like it. I like yeah, it. Yeah, and I somebody think it's like you would do that. I well, yeah, it's an edu- normal people wouldn't, thing. but you <laughs> no, would do that. they shouldn't. <laughs> I spend way too much time in the Wise app. I, I, again, we don't have any sponsors, but especially not Wise. But I do recommend them for foreign travel. That's cool. All right, okay, let's move on to. So you, you just commented briefly on the Fed, and I just wanted to to quick uh, quick roundtable that. So the Fed came out. They said that they are going to raise possibly one more time, but not right now. Um, Anything else come out of that meeting or anything worth noting on their, their commentary? Yeah, so to be clear, they did not raise rates. The market yep. did it for them. They came in the meeting. The 10-year Treasury was about 4.25%. Now it's at 4.5%. So the market said, huh. the market said we're not going to really wait for you. If you're signaling rate hikes, we're going to just go ahead and price it in. That's what we refer to all the time as pricing in, by yep. the way. So the, the yep. Fed, uh, the market tries to predict where the Fed's interest rates are going to go. And that's why we say if the Fed raises, and we've been saying this for months now, as the Fed continues to raise, that doesn't necessarily have a direct impact on Correct. on interest rates. It will on your bank account or a very short term, like CD rates will move with the Fed because they're very short term credit. Uh, but but mid and longer term credit, say five year, 10 year, et cetera, that tries to price in. Uh, which means that when the Fed raises, it actually might not change at all. Exactly. Exactly. And right now, the two-year is showing pretty good deal at 5.1%. Hmm. Um, it is lower than one month, but I'd rather lock in 5.1 for two years versus 5.3 for one month, right? So when you're thinking no about yeah. yeah, CDs and high-yield savings, those are very, very temporary. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're, I promise you, we're going to be talking about the good old days when we had 5% interest rates in 2023. It's just, I, I think we look back at 2017, 2018 and think about relatively higher rates. Yep. And I, they just don't last. Yep. No kidding. No kidding. Let's move to the government shutdown. I think it's important that we talk about this today because I saw this in the news maybe a week ago, maybe two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, it was a little article that said, hey, government might shut down nothing. And then, uh, this deadline is actually next Friday. Yeah. So what the heck's going on again? I thought we, I thought we passed this, right? We raised the debt ceiling. What's going on now? What are the negotiations and why do things seem to be stuck again? Yeah. We've had a lot of market moving fundamental moves, right? Our news. Um, this happens to be possibly the second one. Um, What's happening is the Republican caucus is at a standstill. Um, California's own Kevin McCarthy has very loose grip on his party. Um, there is some pretty extreme viewpoints on the, the, the right. Again, there's extreme viewpoints on the left, but the right right now is uh, really trying to flex their muscle and mm. demanding very sharp spending cuts and with a Democratic president like Joe Biden most likely isn't going to sign anything with this the, the amount of proposed cuts, hmm. especially to social programs and things like that. So um, that's where we're at a standstill. Uh, they're threatening not to even vote on next year's budget, which is, as you said, Chris, like October 1st. I, I think we need to really uh, look at that date as a D-date. And if if government shuts down because there's no agreement – we're going to see a lot of services go away 
and a lot of federal workers get furloughed. So it's going to be a typical thing where essential workers remain on the job and everybody else is on, on a furlough. Is that is that the extent of this? Sorry, what was that? Uh, so this is kind of a, a typical shutdown where essential workers remain on the job, but everybody else gets furloughed. So city services and these kinds of things get furloughed, but you know your trash will still get collected, that kind of stuff. Yeah, correct. Your mail still gets delivered. We still have border security, military operations, things like that. Um, it makes you wonder what was really essential or really not. Uh, but at the same time, uh, those, those workers, a lot of them will actually be working without pay in some cases, depending on what department they work in. Hmm. So what they do is just kind of, they, they, they earn their paycheck, but they don't get paid. They don't get paid. And they get a lump sum. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) So imagine that, right? Imagine that. All right. Well, we'll update that in a couple of weeks on our next recording because I'm sure there'll be, it'll be top of news here in a few weeks um, because these negotiations are happening now. And to House Point, it seems like they're going nowhere. Um, Both parties are holding out saying no. And it seems like they're not very, very close at all right now. So, you know, getting, getting one party to sign the other one's deal. I mean, it's just a non-starter at this point. Yeah. So we'll see what, what materializes here in the next two weeks, roughly. Let's move to our final topic today. The UAW strike, um, lots of strikes in the news, the writer strike, UAW strike. Um, Let's just unpack the UAW strike because this one I think is pretty interesting. You had some interesting data as well on Ford and GM and Stellantis, which by the way, Stellantis, uh, if you haven't heard of them, that's like the parent company of Jeep. Um, Chrysler Jeep. Chrysler Jeep. Um, It's like, why isn't it called Chrysler? Well, Stellantis is kind of like the umbrella company. So uh, that's who that is. How I'll let you kick us off here. Um, Obviously, there's been a strike. What's going on? What are the negotiations? And what are the workers asking for? Yeah, yeah, and this is probably the third big market-moving event that's happened in the last few weeks or since the last episode. So uh, UAW represents about 150,000 workers across the three automakers, but they obviously represent – their union represents um, a lot more workers at a lot more companies, but these are the big three in the headlines. Um, What what their strike is very unique, it's, it's targeted. So if you're striking union worker, you're not getting paid, but they targeted um, supply chain important factories so they don't have to strike the, the entire union, mm. right? So, but when these, when these supply chain hubs aren't producing, that idles other factories. Right. Other but people key, can't get work done. They can't get work done, but the key is they can still go to work. They're just doing mm. their thumbs at work collecting paychecks from these companies mm. versus dipping into the strike pool. Because when you go on strike, you, you build up this this fund, the slush fund, to pay the, the striking auto workers just so they're not um, not earning anything, right? So that's why they've started these targeted strikes to to have this ripple effect at other factories and still maintain their paychecks from Ford, Stellantis, and GM. Interesting. That's, kind That's of a lot of leverage. Yeah, novel approach versus taking all 150,000 workers off payroll. I see. But so, the union would have to pay the, the, the striking wages. So, so let me read this because I think this helps 
explain what you just said. So it says the selected plants that were on strike produce highly profitable vehicles for the automakers that largely continue to be in high demand. So think like Ford makes trucks. That's the most profitable thing. The truck plant is on strike. So about 12,700 workers across Stellantis, GM, and Ford will be on strike at those plants in total. However, the UAW represents 146,000 workers across, again, those three companies. So call it 10% of those workers are on strike, but those 10% are so critical to profitability and the beginning of starting those cars. And now that makes, you know, 130,000 people uh, at some point just kind of twiddling their thumbs. Yeah. Wow. But their goal is to have them remain paid, right? Or stay on payroll for that time being, which striking... Striking is expensive for the union as well, right? I know they're super disruptive to the economy, but unions have to pay for striking workers. But if a fraction, as as Chris mentioned, the fraction of the numbers are actually striking, you don't have to dip in your slush fund too deeply. Yes, yeah, as um, targeted strikes at select plants is somewhat unique, actually. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a new approach that we've seen. Um, but again, I don't think we're going out in support or against unions. It's just kind of trying to report what's happening here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, okay, here's what they're asking for, which is interesting. Key proposals from the union have included 40% hourly pay increases. That's over five years, right? Four over years, four five, years. Four years. Yeah, okay, 40%, 40% of it this year. Increase so twenty percent this year, and then the rest yeah. in the remaining three. Okay. Over the, yeah. They're also asking for a reduced thirty-two hour work week, a shift back to traditional pensions from four hundred one k plans, the elimination of compensation tiers, and a restoration of cost of living adjustments, among other items on the table, uh, which are including enhanced retiree benefits, enhanced vacation and family leave benefits. You had an interesting point here on the forty percent and how they came up with that. Uh, yeah. Could you unpack that for our listeners? Why are they asking for 40% more money? Yeah, and I, I guess this is like a union jump into the future where they're they're just doing some really novel things. So this one was specifically targeting um, GM's CEO, Mary Bar- Barra. Mary Barra. Um, her, her pay increase was up 40% um, since 2019 as well. So uh, the last four years, GM CEO has made 40% higher wages, that mm. they're demanding the same thing as a result. So UAW has pegged its 40% pay increase demand to the increase in CEO paid pay. It's, it does say at the three automakers here, but yeah. um, uh, but Mary Barra was paid $29 million last year, which is 34% more than she received four years ago. Mary comes out and says... Uh, hey, 92% of my compensation is in stock and options that are tied to company financial performance, not pure salary, uh, and that her base pay is unchanged since 2019. But uh, I guess we don't really know what those those tiers are and, and how those shares sure. like release in terms of strike prices. But you had some interesting information on how GM has actually not performed very well in terms of their revenue growth and then also their stock price compared to the other the other two. So Let's unpack that for our listeners. Yeah, maybe Mary Barra should have stayed away from her stock compensation being tied to financial performance. Because um, if I were look, I'm we're looking at it objectively. She probably shouldn't be the CEO of GM. 
let alone maintain this pay raise or pay rate. Um, there's nothing in the stock performance or the financial performance, for that matter, that justifies really any pay increase for her. But your point, is, or their their point, or I guess her point, is that she's being awarded shares, but they're, you know, their their options or their vesting based on yep. company performance, and if the company's not performing, she doesn't get paid. Yep. Right. So I guess you know she could be awarded say thirty million dollars of stock, but maybe it doesn't actually go through if the company yeah. doesn't hit milestones. Right. Exactly, and I think that what makes this kind of muddy with um, the stock compensation because one uh, GM is up 10% over the last three years relative to the S&P is up 40%. Um, so right there, the, the stock performance itself has not really held up its end of the bargain, right, for a potential pay raise. So if the stock is up and you have 10,000 shares awarded to you, right, those that, that the value of the stock option would go up justifiably because you've created value for shareholders and sure. for... Yeah, the company, right? That's really not the case. As you've, uh, GM has blagged the S and P pretty badly, um, and again, we're we're we didn't just look at GM, right? Look at Ford and Stellantis during that same time period. Ford is up a hundred percent. Stellantis is up one one hundred twenty three percent during that same time frame. So I think we could justify uh, Jim Farley's the CEO of Ford's pay raises if there, if there was a true tie to um, stock performance, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're also saying here that when we look at GM's total revenue and net income and sort of their, their performance, um, their, their total revenue over that same period, um, it's up 26%. It looks like uh, total Net yep. income is down thirty six percent, so they had slight increase in revenue, but they're spending more money. Yeah, they're spending more money, and they're becoming a lot less efficient with their bottom line, right? So the bottom line is actually shrunk by thirty six percent. So looking at all the objective numbers, Mary Barra does not really deserve stock compensation or not that kind of a pay raise. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. Different looking at this in different time periods too. I mean, there was there was a period where GM was dramatically, you know, was up more than eighty percent. Uh, you know, when the the market was up, you know, forty. So I mean, it, it there was a period was where it was dramatically outperforming. But then it looks like starting in January of this year, sorry, January of last year, it it, it tanked. Yeah, um, it tanked for six months, and then it's been basically flat ever since then. And we all know what's happened with the S and P since then. Yeah, that time where uh, Chris is mentioning is from January 21 to uh, essentially for the year of 2021 when the market was just frothy about any car company developing an electric vehicle. And I know that's when GM started rolling out their first production of uh, the the electric truck. I, I forgot the name of it. but The Lightning? The Silverado. Is Ford Lightning? Ford, Ford is, lightning. is lightning, yeah, because it's the lightning version of their their yeah. F series, right? So it's similar to AI now. Anyone who mentioned electric vehicle in 2021 saw a big pop in their stock prices because you look at Stellantis and Ford during that time, very big pops as well. So GM CEO Mary Barra makes 29 million a year. 
Ford CEO Jim Farley makes twenty one million, and uh, uh, wait, twenty one million for Ford CEO Jim Farley, and then twenty, call it twenty five million for Stellantis. So interesting. So so Mary makes the most money. I wonder if that's because she has so many. Well, no, that doesn't make any sense. I was going to say if she has sense. Yeah. so many like claws and cliffs around that compensation to try to get company performance up. So they're trying to pay, but they wouldn't. They they would pay it with all these, you know, higher higher vesting schedules or higher higher strike prices and options and things. I mean, that's how Satya Nadella was compensated with Microsoft. You know, Correct. he had all these huge. I mean, that's how Elon was compensated with his with his. He negotiated with the board and had. Uh, these massive stock grants that were based on company performance. And in, in both cases, both of them hit those numbers. Correct. So we don't yeah. know if these are options or if these are RSUs, I guess, right? Yeah, they're prob- most likely options. But most likely, again, yeah. even the, the growth of GM over the last 10 years just doesn't justify 40% yeah. alone, right? So the compensation in terms of the number of shares probably had to go significantly up. To mm, get to yeah. that twenty, yeah, that forty percent because a lot more shares. Yeah, it wasn't share growth. It wasn't profitability. It was so. What kind of financial hurdles did she have to meet? Because that that seems like a very low bar to clear. Hmm. In this case, it's a negative bar because she actually actively lost the company money in the last three years. Be interesting if she comes out and, and is a little bit more public and says like, "Yeah, I was awarded, you know, twenty nine million, but I actually only got." six of those million because of company performance or something. So I, I think it'd be interesting if she really un, unpacks that to try to use that as a case to land somewhere in the middle, 40% increase, you know, in reality, they probably land somewhere in the middle 20. I don't know. I, I, I doubt yeah. they're going to get all of what they're asking for, but, um, interesting, interesting nonetheless. Yeah. And I think it exposes the the gap between CEO and average worker. Cause at yeah, GM, the, the average hourly wage is about $21 an hour. Hmm. And again, we could say a lot about union member performance because um, I, I don't think they're the most productive workers on earth, but is she worth, given GM's performance, is Mary Barrow worth what she was worth or hmm. compensated at the end of 2022? Interesting. It'll be interesting to see how this unfolds and longer it holds, uh, this will start to impact all of us with the price of cars and the inventory of cars. And maybe this causes inventory problems again for cars. Prices go up again and we're back where we started. This could, in theory, lead to contributing to inflation once again, the longer that this this lasts. So this will be interesting to see how this unfolds. I have no doubt that the U.S. domestic production... um, Manufacturers would definitely see an increase in prices. Yeah. But I think we're in a position relative to 21 where supply chain is relatively much, much better. And people could go to Japanese makers, Teslas, or other non big three related products, right? So, because Tesla's not in the union, right? They fought that. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's no striking at Tesla. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not striking from Toyotas or Hondas either. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know if they can fill the gap, but still it's just, I think it's worrisome for the U.S. auto industry w- mm. that have been actively exporting their jobs too. And I don't know if the union really has 
too much of a leg to stand on because a Mexican worker or a Chinese worker or South American worker can probably produce the same quality of car for a lot less money. And that's just kind of the ugly fact of wages here versus abroad. It's be interesting because there's there's obviously this big push in the U.S. to bring manufacturing back on shore, chip plants, you know, that kind now of thing. Now it's pushing back out, right? And based on this, that could push things back out because of just cost and bottom line. And ultimately, if a CEO is trying to raise bottom line because that's good for shareholders yeah. and grow the company, that could then kind of change change this this trajectory. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, Mary Barra needs to you know, um, justify her wages, her wage yeah. increases, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks everyone for tuning in. That's all the time we have today. We hope today's episode is helpful. And, um, if you like our commentary, give us a like and a subscribe and also follow us over on YouTube. I know that you can tune into this on YouTube and via any podcast platform. We have a number of different resources on YouTube. Uh, one thing that I think everyone would enjoy is our Concilio University uh, feed that includes two to eight minute videos on super helpful financial planning topics, um, which is a deviation from what we talk about on this podcast, which is mostly uh, top of mind media, top of mind news, and just trying to unpack the headlines for our listeners. So thanks again, everyone for tuning in and we'll catch you again in two weeks. All right. Thanks, Chris.